Hello, everybody. I'm actually going to be speaking on the same passage that Andy Wheeler spoke on last week. Who was here last week? Excellent, you good and faithful people. Um, But I'm going to be taking uh, a different look at things. I want to be looking at um, Peter's experience of this passage and about forgiveness. Um, So in a minute, Alice is going to read from us um, from John 21. But um, before I do that, I want to give uh, a little bit of a background to this story so you know what's happening what sort of the context is that it's taking place in. Because in, in my opinion, this story is as much a story of resurrection as the one that was told a couple of weeks ago. Um, so here goes. The passage takes place shortly after the resurrection. So um, two or three weeks prior to this, Peter and John would have walked into an empty tomb To them, it would have looked as if somebody had taken Jesus' body. So, scared for their safety, they rushed back home and locked themselves in. The women who had seen the risen Jesus at the tomb told the disciples the good news that they had seen him. But um, they also let the disciples know that Jesus wanted them to go to Galilee and had promised to meet them there. However, the disciples were unconvinced and they were also still afraid, so they chose to remain where they were um, and not to leave the house. However, some time later, to their astonishment, Jesus appeared to them as a group as they were having supper in the locked room. And a week after that, they again encountered him. This time, um, Thomas was there, and it's the occasion where he puts his hand into Jesus' side. We also know from 1 Corinthians 5 that Peter had met with the risen Jesus on his own, although we don't have any other details about that meeting. So, having met with him two or three times, they've met with him two or three times when this scene takes place. And they've now returned to Galilee, Galilee as instructed by Jesus. However, with no clear instructions of how long they're going to have to wait and no agenda, Peter was no doubt getting cabin fever. So he decided to go out onto the local lake and to go fishing. Um, The local lake is the Sea of Tiberias, which is otherwise known as the Sea of Galilee. And having decided to go, a group of disciples decided they wanted to go with him. So that's the sort of sum up of what happened just before this reading. Uh, now I'd like to show some photos of the lake for those of you who weren't here last week and who haven't actually um, visited Lake Galilee. Um, by the way, I'd be quite interested to know, how many of you have visited Lake Galilee? Wow, loads. How amazing. Well, you'll be able to tell me whether my photos are any good. So this first shot is a satellite picture. And if you can see at the top of the picture, there's a white splodge, and that is um, Tiberias, the town. Um, The second picture is an aerial shot of the lake, which just looks really beautiful. And can I just say, it is a lake, it's called sea, but it is a lake, clearly. And the third picture shows the shoreline. So who knows, this could be the actual bit of beach where they met. 
The fourth picture is the Sea of Galilee at dawn, because that's the time when this scene takes place. You may or may not know that this is the same lake that Peter, James, and John were fishing on when Jesus first called his disciples, and that was three years previously. On that day, Jesus had found them on the shore washing their nets after a fruitless night's fishing. Jesus asked Peter if he could use his boat to preach from, so Peter took the boat a short distance from the shore. When he had finished speaking, Jesus asked Peter to push him out into deeper water and lower his nets in order to catch some fish. Now, Peter knew full well there were no fish to be had. Firstly, because he spent the whole flipping night fishing and he hasn't caught a thing. And secondly, because he knows that on this lake you can never catch any fish in the daytime because once the sun comes up, the fish swim too low down for the nets to reach. Nonetheless, Peter did as he was asked, not, I suspect, because he thought he was going to catch any fish, but because he wanted to honor the one who had asked him. Imagine his astonishment when he proceeded to catch so many fish that his net started to break. And thus began his adventure with Jesus. Interestingly, that excursion may well have been the last time that Peter had been fishing. Because when he left his boat that day, he also left everything else behind in order to follow Jesus and to take up his new identity as a fisher of men. After that three-year gap, Peter might have been feeling a bit rusty fishing-wise, but I doubt he'd lost his knack. Although I am no fisherwoman myself, I strongly suspect it's like riding a bike. It's not a skill you easily lose. Fishing, for Peter, was after all the family trade. He'd been raised with all the insider knowledge that that implies. And what's more, this was his local spot. So he knew the lake well, and he knew the, where the fish were most likely to be hanging out. So that's a sort of broad picture of where we're at when what we're about to hear takes place. And now Alice has very kindly agreed to come and read the passage to you. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. When they, sorry. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. 
As soon as Simon Peter heard, he said, It is the Lord. He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off. They jumped and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals with, a f- with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, about 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dare ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came to and took bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said, this is indication. Jesus said this is to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Alice. Okay, so tonight I want us to look at this passage from Peter's perspective. So I would like you to try and put yourself in Peter's shoes It was night time when they set out on their fishing trip. But as the sun dawned on the horizon, they were still out on the water without having caught a single fish. They must have spent several hours in the stillness of the night with no fish in sight and nothing to do. During that time, I wonder if Peter's thoughts turned to the day three years previously and the journey that it had preempted. When Jesus came into his world, his life was turned upside down. Everything that he knew to be true was turned on its head. He had entered into this journey with such enthusiasm, such gusto, and with a sense of promise and such naivety. But now those days must seem like a distant dream. In those days... He had been the leader of the pack before that awful day when Jesus was arrested and he had failed his friend. The flashbacks must have been horrendous. Only hours before Jesus' arrest, Peter had sworn undying allegiance to him and he had meant it. When the high priest soldiers came to Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, Peter was there ready to defend him. He would have given his life for that man. He loved him so. 
He had even drawn his sword and sliced off the ear of the high priest's slave in an effort to protect the one he loved. But Jesus had stopped him. Jesus willingly walked into their trap like a lamb to the slaughter. He didn't want Peter's help. It was so confusing. Peter was still determined to stand by this man, which was why he followed him into Caiaphas's courtyard when all the others had fed, fled except for one other. He wanted to be at hand in case Jesus changed his mind and asked for help. As he stood with the crowd who were huddled around the brazier for warmth, with the smell of charcoal filling the air, his heart was pounding in his chest. How could it have gone so horribly wrong? How could Jesus, the one who always seems so in control, have let things get so out of control? His thoughts were interrupted. A servant girl was tugging at his sleeve. She wanted to know if he was a disciple of Jesus. He was just annoyed at her distracting him. He had, after all, quite a lot on his mind. He didn't want to risk getting chucked out or, worse, still arrested, <clears throat> so he flippantly denied it. He didn't think much of it at the time. It didn't feel like a betrayal. He was just being pragmatic. Then she started discussing him with everybody else around the fire. In as relaxed a manner as possible, he gently slipped away from the fire and away from the guards. But she wouldn't let it go. She followed him and she asked him again. For a second time, he denied knowing Christ. A rooster crowed. He was effectively locked in the enemy's courtyard and heads were starting to turn. He just wanted her to go away and leave him alone. She did. But just when he thought it was going to be all right, another servant, a relative of the man whose ear he'd lobbed off, approached him. Did I not see you in the garden with him? For the third time, he vehemently denied it. A curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. And then the rooster crowed a second time. Jesus' words came flooding back. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He broke down and wept. Something inside him had died that evening. His own bold confidence and strength were killed, along with his sense of identity. He hadn't recovered since. No matter where he was or what he was doing, like a videotape on repeat, he couldn't stop replaying that incident in his mind. In order to give you an idea of what that might have been like, I would like to tell you about an occasion that happened to me when I was in my teenagers. Um, it takes place at my home. My mum had gone out for the evening, leaving me and my siblings to entertain ourselves. Being a typical teenager, I embraced the opportunity to slob around the house and watch telly. 
at one point in the evening, I decided I'd have a bath. So I went upstairs to the bathroom to switch the tap on. Unfortunately, the water pressure in our house is pretty rubbish, so filling a bath takes a while. So I decided what I'd do is, instead of standing there staring at the bath filling up, I'd go down and watch the rest of my program. <clears throat> the next time I remembered the bath was when I heard my mother's key in the door. I shot upstairs as fast as my feet would carry me. But it was way, way, way too late. The entire bathroom was flooded. I did my best to scoop up the water and dry the, the floor with a towel, but I couldn't tell how much had seeped through. <clears throat> I went downstairs to check. The bathroom is located over our best room, the room which is reserved for adults and guests and is locked. <clears throat> my mother had been saving up for an extremely expensive silk wallpaper, a luxury product she wouldn't normally splash out on. Two days previously, at, it had been hung, and my mum was thrilled. We had all been assemble, assembled to admire it. It was both beautiful and very sophisticated. I opened the locked door and peered in. There was a slow drip emanating from the center of the ceiling. As quietly as I could, I rushed to get a bucket, not wanting the floor to get damaged too. As I evaluated the situation, I thought, it's bad, but it's not too bad. The center of the ceiling would need repainting, but I could do that. That was when I noticed a small trickle running down one of the walls, over the newly hung wallpaper. The color drained from my face. I ran to get my older sister for advice. She suggested that we drill a hole through the center of the ceiling to allow the water to flow out there, which we did, and unleashed a torrent of water. At this point, my mum came in. As the minutes rolled by, we discovered more water running down different walls. There was some talk about whether the plaster on the ceiling would collapse. I busied myself with buckets and towels, but there was really nothing I could do. The paper was ruined, and the damage was done permanently. My mother was amazing. She didn't scream. She didn't shout. She didn't even tell me off. She just silently looked at the scene with sort of patient sadness in her eyes. The thing is, there was absolutely no excuse for what I did. I'd just been a complete slob and utterly selfish. No matter how I reran the story in my head, there was no redeeming factor. That event completely and utterly traumatized me. Years later, I would wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night thinking about it. I would see myself sitting in front of the telly, over-relaxing, but there was nothing I could do to spur myself into action. I just had to watch the scene unfurl over again. If I felt that bad about flooding a bath, I can't begin to imagine what hell Peter went through denying the one he loved.
how could he erase that tape from his mind? He no longer had faith in himself. He couldn't see himself as the reliable rock on which the church was going to be built because at his time of testing, he had failed. If I go back to the passage that we've just been read, I can't help but suspect that that tape was playing for Peter over those quiet night hours. It was dawn when the stranger called from the shore. Do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they did as instructed, and they caught so many fish that they were unable to haul the catch in, and yet their nets did not break. This scene instantly resonated with John, who'd been with Peter those three years earlier. And on that occasion, too, they'd been fishing all night without success on the very same lake, and on the very same day, too, they had been completely unaware of the new beginning and the new hope that the dawn would bring. Peter leapt out of the boat to greet Jesus, no doubt keen to do everything he could to show remorse. As they gather around the fire to eat breakfast, I wonder if the smell of charcoal reminded Peter of the fire in Caiaphas' courtyard and of his denials. Jesus may have spoken to him about the incident in a previous conversation. He may even have told Peter he was forgiven. That was, after all, why he went to the cross. But for Peter, something had been broken between the two of them. The purity of the relationship was solid, and it would never go back to how it was before. Breakfast finished, Keen to mend the wound that stood between the two of them, Jesus took Peter aside to have a private word with him. He could have spoken of so many things, but instead he simply asked, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He asked this question because it's fundamental. Love for Jesus is the essential foundation for all who want to serve him. Without it, Peter wouldn't be able to withstand all that he was going to have to face. Peter replies, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my lambs. Jesus asks him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And for a second time, Peter replies, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Tend my sheep. For a third time, Jesus asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Not that surprisingly, Peter's upset that Jesus feels it's necessary to ask him a third time. And he replies, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. For a third and final time, Jesus instructs, feed my sheep. I believe that this is the moment at which Peter's life was resurrected. 
The three times that Peter had denied Christ, which had been playing relentlessly in his head, from, was um, ended from the moment that he heard, sorry, let's try that again. The three times Peter had denied Christ, which had been playing relentlessly in his head from the moment he'd heard the second cockerel crow, were overwritten and replaced during this exchange by the three times that he voiced his love for the Lord. Furthermore, you'll notice that Jesus didn't just announce, you're forgiven, something that Peter was unable to accept. He announced, you're commissioned. He gave Peter a job to do, feed my sheep. This job was to take on his role as the good shepherd, because it is the good shepherd who leads and feeds his sheep. When God says to us that we are forgiven, it is never simply a matter of empty words. It never just takes us back to a neutral position. God's forgiveness is his commission. This exchange between Jesus and Peter marked a turning point for Peter. This moment was his recommissioning and his reinstatement as the rock on which the church would be built. Through this exchange, Jesus gave Peter back his value, his meaning, and his purpose. Jesus restored his identity. Let's note he didn't remove the memory of Peter's transgression. On that front, he agreed with Peter. It would never be the same. You see, until Peter learned that if we, were, if we rely on our own strength, we are a liability, Jesus couldn't use him. The reason Jesus allowed this event to remain in Peter's memory was because it was the very thing that made Peter such a brilliant leader. It was only because he had made such an undeniable slip-up that he was no longer tempted to take things into his own hands when it got sticky. He knew for sure and certain that he needed to trust in the Lord only. The truth is, God never chooses people on the basis that they are good people or that they are fully qualified people or even fully prepared people. In fact, he specializes in choosing the broken, the weak, the inadequate, because on that basis, there is no question that all the glory belongs to him. 2 Corinthians tells us that we are jars of clay designed to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, most people would throw away damaged clay jars or at least insist that the damages to their broken items be concealed and be hidden in the repair, making the object look like it was new. But Jesus, like those who practice the Japanese art of kintsugi, rather than disguising the breakage, restores the broken item with gold, incorporating the damage into the aesthetic of the restored item making it part of the object's history. This is how Jesus restores Peter, and this is how he restores us. When Peter leaps out of the boat to greet Jesus, he offers himself, his love, 
his life and his future. His mess, his folly, and his brokenness. He offers it all to Jesus to do with as he will. And Jesus takes this broken man and lovingly restores him, kintsugi style, so that Peter's life, faults and all, will glorify his name. There is a reason why Peter's denials and his reinstatements are included in our Bible. And that is because God wants us to know that that same forgiveness and that same recommissioning are available to us too. Now, as I look at all you lot, I have to say you look pretty perfect. It's hard to believe that you have anything going on in your lives for which you are not proud. But if there's one thing that um, I have discovered over life, it is, is that nobody is invincible. We all get it wrong from time to time. I earnestly hope that you take from this talk the fact that no matter how badly we've slipped up, or indeed how many times we've done things we regret, there is absolutely nothing that Jesus cannot restore. If we slip up and we find it impossible to receive forgiveness, it affects our identity and we will be frozen in that moment, unable to take the next step forward. But if we're able to acknowledge our failures and offer our brokenness to Jesus, he can restore us, our value, our meaning, our purpose and our identity. And he can use us to glorify his name. In a moment, um, we're going to have um, some music to allow us some time to meet with God. And while this is going on, we're just going to remain seated. And during that time, you might like to bring to God anything that you've been carrying that you don't feel you've received forgiveness for. Peter offered his love, his life, and his future, his mess, his folly, and his brokenness. He offered them to Jesus to do as he pleased. And I suggest that we do the same so that Jesus can take our mess and lovingly restore us kintsugi style, so that our whole life, faults and all, will glorify his name. Then at the end of the song, there's going to be an opportunity to come forward and be prayed for. This will be a commissioning opportunity, and it's not just for people who have asked for forgiveness, but for anybody who would like God to fill them, so that they can leave this building filled with his transforming power. And if you're somebody who's sitting there and you're in the happy position of having nothing to seek forgiveness for, you might like to take this time to pray for those who do, or simply to enjoy time in God's presence. Now, I'm not priested, so I can't absolve anybody's sins, (coughs) but I can tell you what the Bible says. 1 John tells us, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all righteousness. Lord, I pray for all those who are confessing their sins to you, 
that they would be able to know your forgiveness and your restoration tonight. Amen.